Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Now we're back on track, hopefully, with monthly episodes. This one is a little different thematically and might be something I continue, so let me explain. I often come across stories of new surgical breakthroughs, and this is history being written in real time, so why not cover it? Besides, these things don't appear de novo, so to speak, but often have fascinating history leading up to it. So I want to cover these more as I come across them. Now, growing up in Canada, there was an amazing radio program called The Ongoing History of New Music with Alan Cross, which is basically a music history podcast before podcasts existed. So I'm going to shamelessly rip off the title. Let's hope there are no copyright infringements. Sorry, Alan. So in this spirit, we're going to cover a story some of you may have heard about, the first ever whole eye transplant. Or was it? Let's take a closer look in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Now, not to overwhelm you with changes to the show, but I had another idea I want to try out. If you love trivia as much as me, I think you'll enjoy it. I'm going to ask you a question at the top of the show and give you the answer at the end. If you're not interested in listening to the whole thing and just want the trivia, feel free to skip ahead. I won't be offended, I promise. Now, without further ado, here's your trivia question. What is the connection between Benito Mussolini and sheets of connective tissue in the body? Now have a think on that one, and in the meantime, we'll get into the main event. Now if you follow the news, you may have already heard about this, but even if you have, I want to dig a little deeper. It is the story of the world's first transplantation of an entire human eye. 46-year-old Aaron James of Hot Springs, Arkansas, was working as a high-voltage lineman in Oklahoma on June 21st of 2021 when his face accidentally touched a live wire. He received a 7,200-volt electric shock which caused severe burns to his face. After numerous reconstructive surgeries, Mr. James lost his left eye, his entire nose and lips, front teeth, left cheek area, his chin down to the bone, and his dominant left arm above the elbow. He was seen by Dr. Eduardo D. Rodriguez, director of the face transplant program at NYU Langan Health in New York City. Quick tangent, the origins of NYU Langan Health began in 1841 as the Medical College of New York University. It was started by pioneering vascular surgeon Dr. Valentine Mott, along with five other eminent physicians and scientists, with an inaugural class of 239 students. He may just deserve a separate suture tail at some point. Anyways, the decision was made to attempt a face transplant, the fifth ever done by Dr. Rodriguez. For perspective, the best estimate I could find was that there have been 47 face transplants ever done worldwide. In addition to this, for the first time, with a caveat we'll come back to, a whole eye would be also be transplanted. While the goal for this would be primarily cosmetic, it was also hoped to be a chance to learn more about transplanting a complete eye, which could benefit future patients. Amazingly, Mr. James only had to wait three months before a suitable donor was found at another New York hospital. A young man in his 30s was matched with a family that strongly supports organ donation. He also saved the lives of three other people ranging in age from 20 to 70 through the donation of his kidneys, liver, and pancreas. Take a moment to appreciate the generosity of this young man and his family and all the donor families out there. And here's a nice touch. A 3D printed replacement of the donor's face was created to restore the donor's identity after his organs were recovered before returning his remains to his family. 
The transplant occurred on May 27th of this year, 2023, an operation that lasted 21 hours and involved 140 surgeons, nurses, and other healthcare professionals. Here's a list of the transplanted tissues. Partial face, including the nose, left upper and lower eyelids, left eyebrow, upper and lower lips, and underlying skull, cheek, nasal and chin bone segments, as well as all tissues below the right eye, including the underlying muscles, blood vessels, and nerves. And of course, the whole left eye and socket, including orbital bone and surrounding eye tissues, including the optic nerve. And here's where it gets really interesting. To encourage healing of the connection between the donor and recipient optic nerve, surgeons harvested stem cells from the donor's bone marrow and injected them into the optic nerve during the transplant, hoping that they would replace damaged cells and protect the nerve. Now, connecting peripheral nerves surgically has a long track record of success, but the optic nerve is part of the central nervous system, and that has not been shown to regrow. If we solve that problem, the benefits would be enormous. For example, just think of spinal cord injuries. I covered some of the efforts to connect nerves to the central nervous system in a previous episode on head transplants, episode number 29, Halloween edition. Seriously. Now, the odds that these efforts restore sight into the transplanted eye are slim. Here's a quote from Dr. Rodriguez, quote, If some form of vision restoration occurred, it would be wonderful, but the goal was for us to perform the technical operation, end quote. The good news so far is that the eye is healthy, has well-functioning blood vessels, and a promising-looking retina, so who knows? We can only hope and wait at this point. Okay, as mentioned, there is a caveat to claiming this as the first human whole eye transplant. There's some pretty interesting history of surgery around it, so let's take a look. In 1885, in the Revue Générale d'Ophthalmologie, there was a report that the abnormal eye of a 17-year-old girl had been replaced by the eye of a rabbit by Dr. Chibray. The rabbit eye was placed into the empty conjunctival sac and sutured in place through the patient's conjunctiva and into the cornea. Now, unsurprisingly, this failed 15 days later. Other attempts were made unsuccessfully, but in 1969, a controversial report of a transplanted whole eye came out of Texas, which was later retracted. Let's zoom in on this tale. On Tuesday, April 22, 1969, ophthalmologist Canard Moore performed the world's first whole eye transplant in Houston, Texas, at the Methodist Hospital in the Texas Medical Center. But did it happen? The following day, Wednesday, April 23rd, the Houston Post newspaper banner headline read, Complete Eye Transplanted. The news traveled around the world with coverage by print and television news networks touting this first-of-its-kind operation. But from the ophthalmological world came shock and condemnation at the details around the case, and by Saturday that same week, a large press conference was called where Dr. Moore recanted the claim, stating that he had only transplanted the front part of the eye, Still a significant operation, but hardly a world's first. So what really happened? Let's look at some of the details. The patient was a 54-year-old man whose right eye had, quote, a dystrophy, which made his cornea opaque, end quote. Moore had already attempted a penetrating keratoplasty, which is essentially a corneal transplant, two weeks prior, which had failed. During that operation, the patient suffered, quote, an expulsive hemorrhage in which the blood filled and destroyed the eye, end quote. During that operation, the patient suffered, quote, an expulsive hemorrhage in which the blood filled and destroyed the eye, end quote. Moore hoped to improve the patient's vision by performing an anterior graft, including the cornea and a rim of sclera, an operation which his boss and colleague, 
Louis Girard, had pioneered in 1956. After the first operation, the patient stayed at Methodist Hospital and a whole eye from a donor patient who died in the same hospital on April 21st was obtained. The following day, Moore took his patient back to the operating room. From one account, during the case, complications developed, including intraocular bleeding, and Moore made the decision to remove the entire eye and replace it with the donor. The optic nerve ends from the donor and recipient were sewn together, and the patient's extraocular muscles, which move the eye around, were sutured to the donor eye, and finally, the eyelids were sewn shut. Just to close the loop, so to speak, the patient was discharged from hospital on May 12th. After opening the lids, the eye apparently, according to the patient's wife, had no sight, but had perfect movement and some feeling in it. The patient and his family were happy with the results. We have no further information beyond the fact that the patient died at the age of 71 in 1985. But back to Moore. The main issue was that he'd attempted an experimental surgery and he hadn't sought permission from the Baylor Human Experimentation Committee because, in his words, quote, I don't think it has anything to do with human experimentation, end quote. Now, even in the 1960s, that's a pretty weak argument, but there are other factors at play which we'll get into in a minute that are quite interesting. As mentioned, the lay media found this sensational, and it drew much attention to Moore and the Texas Medical Center. The condemnation from ophthalmologists around the world changed the mood around this pioneering surgery, with some experts stating that it was doomed to failure and that it was, quote, utopian, end quote, read naive, to think that this procedure could restore vision. By Friday, the Houston Ophthalmological Society's executive committee released a statement critical of the operation. The following day, a Saturday, a press conference was called, in which Moore claimed that he had not, in fact, transplanted a whole eye, but rather, quote, the optic nerve with a small remnant of the posterior pole of the eyeball and a small remnant of the retina which was left in place, and a new anterior segment attached anteriorly in position to this, end quote. He even had handouts to illustrate this point. But a medical reporter, Miriam Cass from the Houston Post, who'd interviewed Moore over the phone following the original surgery, used the notes she'd taken to dispute this claim, pointing out that Moore had used the term whole eye transplant repeatedly and had described reattaching the optic nerve. Other reporters asked follow-up questions, and eventually a Methodist hospital administrator abruptly declared the press conference over and swiftly escorted Moore from the room. At the end of the day, what likely happened was that Moore initially attempted the anterior graft described earlier by removing the cornea with a rim of sclera, which was the only tissue submitted to the pathology department, by the way, and after complications arose, he performed an enucleation, which is removing the whole eye, and placed the entire donor eye into the socket. Why the enucleated eye never made it to the pathology department is a mystery that will remain unsolved. So what was happening at the Texas Medical Center and Baylor College of Medicine that made this a particularly sensitive issue? Well, the head of the executive faculty committee was none other than our old friend, cardiac surgeon Michael DeBakey. See episodes 85 and 87. And if you listened to those episodes, you may recall another transplant-related controversy, one that had occurred earlier, just a few weeks prior, in fact. Denton Cooley, also discussed in episodes 85 and 87, had performed the first implantation of an artificial heart into a human, which was done without DeBakey's knowledge or without any review beforehand by the Baylor Medical Research Committee, which created a rift between the two surgical giants that lasted the rest of their careers. Clearly, it wasn't the best time to be attempting novel surgeries without permission. 
Kennard Moore did not receive any discipline for his actions from the Texas Medical Board, the American Board of Ophthalmology, or the American Academy of Ophthalmology. He did, however, resign from his post under pressure from Baylor and went into solo practice in the area. He later tried to reinstate his privileges but was denied. His boss and colleague department chair, Louis Girard, mentioned earlier, was not so lucky, despite the fact that he was attending a conference in Barcelona, Spain at the time of the controversial operation. The committee headed by DeBakey demanded his resignation after an investigation, and he also went into private practice. So that concludes the tale of what may or may not have been the first whole eye transplant. What a story, right? Okay, now you've made it to the end of the podcast, so let's talk trivia. To remind you, the question was, what is the connection between Benito Mussolini and connective tissue? Italian ruler Benito Mussolini, considered the first European fascist, coined the term fascism from the Italian word fascio, meaning bundle. Now, there are a couple of reasons given for the use of this term, so let's quickly cover them. From Mussolini's own account, the Fasces of Revolutionary Action was founded in Italy in 1915, and by 1919, Mussolini himself founded the Italian Fasces of Combat in Milan, which became the National Fascist Party. In this sense of the word, it referred to groups or bundles of people, sort of like a guild or syndicate. But the term was also associated with a more ancient and powerful symbol, the fasces of ancient Rome. This was a bundle of wooden sticks with an axe head in the center, which was carried by Roman lictors who were attendants to the magistrates, an elected office with the authority to mete out corporal and even capital punishment, among other rules, and it acted as a symbol of the power of the office. Mussolini used this to invoke the greatness of the Roman Empire and to reinforce his own authority as the dictator of Italy. This bundle of sticks, also called the fascio litorio, dates back to a culture even older than the Romans, the Etruscans, who inhabited Italy before them. It is thought that part of the symbolism was that it suggests strength through unity. A single rod is easily broken, while a bundle of sticks is difficult to break. Fun facts. The fasces symbol can also be seen on the old U.S. Mercury dime, named after the god, not the metal. If you're curious, look it up. And is still seen behind the podium in the U.S. House of Representatives. So what does all this have to do with anatomy? Well, as I'm sure you've guessed, fascism shares a root word with the medical term fascia. In Latin, it means band or bandage, swath or ribbon, and is a derivative of fasces, meaning bundle. The terms share a common Proto-Indo-European root word. This definition may also be familiar to you as the architectural meaning of fascia, as it means a wooden board or other flat piece of material like you'd see on the outside of buildings, for example. But in the medical sense, it refers to, in general, a fibrous membrane covering, supporting, and separating tissues in the body. It was first used in English medical discourse in the 1615 anatomical text called Microcosmographia, a description of the body of man, written by Hekia Crook. He was the court physician to James I, and, fun fact, was the first qualified doctor to be appointed the keeper of the Royal Bethlehem Hospital. This institution actually dates back to 1247 CE, when it began as the St. Mary of Bethlehem Hospital. At some point in the 14th century, it began to specialize in the care and control of the insane. Well, why am I telling you this? Because the hospital began to be referred to colloquially as Bedlam, which is where we get the modern use of that word to mean a scene of uproar and confusion. So the next time you describe a scene as Bedlam, 
Think about how you are, in fact, invoking the name of a medieval English insane asylum. Now you know. So, the answer to the trivia question is, essentially, that fascism and fascia share a common meaning and origin. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. In the meantime, please rate this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Or follow me on Twitter, or now called X, at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'm also trying to post more on Instagram and threads, so look for me there too. I'd love to hear from you, but your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.